I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ori and Nanjala, two of my favorite Kenyans in the previous episode. If you haven't, please check it out. Nanjira Sambuli is another favorite of mine. I finally caught up with her a few days ago. My name is Nanjira Sambuli. I work at the World Wide Web Foundation as a senior policy manager. And I focus a lot on digital equality and what that looks like in terms of political, civic, economic and social considerations for our societies today. We tried to connect a couple of weeks ago, uh, but and you were at the AI Summit in Cape Town. What was that about? So the AI Summit in Cape Town is part of a, big, uh, of a bigger uh, summit that happens called AfricaCom, which is perhaps the largest gathering of particularly actors in technology, telecommunications and media. And so AI Summit is one particular stream in it. And we were looking at how to, to bridge the conversations between AI innovators and policymakers. So it was a great gathering, just a place to get a sense of how um, AI policy is uh, is being shaped on the continent and how policymakers are approaching the subject and how interactions with uh, those who are innovating uh, or loosely using the term AI for innovation are looking at it and working with actors in lockstep so that um, it's all coherent down the path. And what were some of those issues that uh, were being discussed in the conference? As with, I think, as with other technologies that we've seen, it's always about even sifting beyond the hype and really trying to break it down to substance. What is it, what is it for example, that people mean when they say they're using AI to solve particular problems. If they can break that down, explain it. And one key principle we're trying to advance with new technologies is explainability, mechanisms of transparency and accountability. And therefore, so that when we're talking about how they'll be governed and how they'll be regulated, it's from a shared understanding of what, whether, you know, beyond the lexicon, if we're using the same descriptors. It was interesting, for example, to have been on a panel with the Minister of um, Communications in uh, South Africa, who was talking about how for them the fourth industrial revolution as this big term, catch-all term, is determining how they are approaching that conversation and trying to also get the, her or uh, representatives like herself from government to go beyond the hype of these technologies and explain to us how do they see the interconnections to other er- areas or enabling factors like connectivity to the internet, affordability of devices, um, skills, uh, digital skills, and by this we mean uh, just a wide range of skills that enable anybody to not only just consume, but to be able to create whether they're using basic um, coding or they're using advanced you know, machine learning or AI technologies. How do we actually sh- set um, a digital skilling landscape that allows anybody to have a sound baseline and then build upon it to create new innovations that are context specific. So it was a very enriching conversation, a very um, great one to have at the start of that kind of summit and, uh, and more importantly, bridging that uh, those, those gaps or silos between those who work in policy or regulation and those who say they are innovating. Any conversation about AI is all about data and there's this kind of phrase about data is the new oil. I, I think you're not a big fan of uh, that phrase. Uh, why? As with many things, I think it's very, it's reductive sentences that, you know, sound like hype and, and easy to digest, but it's comparing two very different commodities. It's one thing to give, to have used data as the new oil as to get people to understand the, the value that exists in the data value chains. It's another thing for that to now advance how we think and how we plan for governing and regulating data. For example, um, oil is a is a, is, a, is a finite commodity, you know, once it's extracted from the ground or the soil and all of that. It's not something that can go back in. But data is this sort of like circle that continues to evolve at every value, at every point of it, if there's value that can be added or, you know, extracted and so on. So it's a bit, uh, it's a bit problematic to actually use 
uh, the oil industry as a way to think about how we will govern the data economies that are emerging. And so it's been very important to get people to go beyond the, these uh, pithy sort of like aphorisms and really understand that we start there and then we end up down the wrong path with uh, what guides innovation or what guides um, regulation or governance around it. So it's been very important to get everybody back on the table and understand these are two very different commodities. Each of them has a very uh, different sort of like value chain, but it's, I think more importantly, now we're getting more consensus on how much the data economy, uh, the result, the net effect of all our activities using leveraging all these devices has value for the different actors. And we need to be aware of that, whether it's governments, whether it's ordinary citizens, and also those who are going to be building solutions on top of that kind of value chain to ensure that, you know, particular human values like agency, explainability, transparency, um, and accountability for how your data is used or misused is possible in that process. What about conversations around data protection and data privacy? Is, is that what you're also seeing? Uh, being discussed in some of the conferences that you're attending? Yes, I mean, data protection and privacy in the digital age have become very important issues. However, um, how they're discussed, I think what's becoming very clear uh, for many actors is that the, techno uh, the technical is also very political. So that when we talk about uh, privacy in, in one context, maybe in Europe, may have a different conceptualization in other regions. And how do you make sure that the laws that are determined uh, to, to, to guide um, every actor or every stakeholder are contextual, first and foremost? It's not sufficient, for example, to just say you cut, copy and paste one model that has worked in one region. Um, and so those are very, becoming very important considerations and conversations because as data becomes this new commodity, of course, we need the guardrails around it and data protection laws are one. The other thing is even as we see a number of countries or a number of jurisdictions sort of going towards, marching towards um, data protection laws, um, it's, it's been quite important to remind people it's one thing to have the law, it's another thing to have the spirit to enforce it. And that remains the missing link, even for where we've seen those advancements. Uh, interestingly, we're also seeing in places like, um, I think, uh, this one region in India that is creating its own regional data protection law, absent, say, a broader one, though India itself has just now said they're going to proceed with the debating on the data protection bill, or what we're seeing in places like California. Here in Kenya, we've seen that a data protection bill was passed this year. However, it remains to be seen what are the timelines for implementing all the clauses and especially the, the mechanisms that are supposed to bring it to life. So bringing that whole context, it's not enough to just call for these laws. It's another thing to call about how every actor will be involved in every step of the way, from shaping the laws as, as they would apply to a particular jurisdiction and the people who um, are going to be affected by the laws that are put in place to how the mechanisms of um, enforceability will be uh, will be put in place and how other all actors can be involved in that okay so africa generally is kind of a net import of technology and it's pretty much likely that when it comes to ai we'll probably see the same thing so what what are kind of like pointers uh, that you'd probably give to policymakers when it comes to uh, you know, making sure that African interests are protected. Um, what are kind of the things that they should be thinking about? Not, I mean, is just is policy enough? Just passing a data protection law? It is not. And in fact, I think it's you've, you've nailed it to the point of understanding that at this point, it's not necessarily that we should say in every strategy that a government puts forth, they're going to say they're going to set up R&D. We've seen some countries have been able to do that by setting up, say, local assemblage for mobile phones or computers, which is fine. But I don't think at this point and in the advancement of how technologies and how you know the entire value chain is, we, we need to necessarily be playing by what is being seen as the so-called model of approaching either policymaking or strategy. Um, however, the value even of how we import a lot of the 
a lot of the raw ex- materials that shape these elements, the devices in our hands, are coming from our extra uh, our sort of soil, so to speak. So that value has also not been, uh, you know, captured in how we can use it as a better way to strengthen how we have a sort of negotiating power in the global stage and the interconnectedness of these issues now in the technological age. It means um, it's not just about doing things at the local level; it's also about doing it within context of where you fit within that particular value chain. So just um, having and really trying to encourage our governments to take a systems view and then and look at the entire technological ecosystem uh, from everything from the purely technical and developing the bits and bobs to also how um, skills and what kinds of skills are ready for uh, you know people in particular jurisdictions to add value so that those can also help shape or bring more meat to whatever we say a, a particular sort of like strands of policies or strategies that are going to be put in place it's it it remains tricky to get a lot of people to take that systems view and yet in this technological age, it's the most important thing we can do to set off sound baselines that ensure that uh, values are also just uh, not, you know, we don't just even um, uh, just remain sort of like consumers or importers, but we can also capture and lock in our values for our jurisdictions and for our own um, interests. Now, there's this term that I've, I've seen many people in, in the space that uh, you work in use, uh, digital colonialism. What is it? Well, it's emerging as this uh, school of thought around the fact that particular regions of the world are being captured, and especially where data is involved. The a whole idea of connecting people has not been so much about um, them having agency to set, set the rules of engagement so much as to be uh, customers locked in to, to a particular value chain. So somebody's able to connect you right from um, everything from, say, infrastructure, the CQ, uh, fiber optic cables, to the app that you will use, to the very day-to-day activities you're using so that they can capture that data and lock it in. Uh, that, of course, is arising from the fact that um, it's, it's, it's linked to in a sense, being late to the game to connecting people. But even in the digital developments, what we see is they've not, the, the, the trends we are seeing there or the disparities between different regions are following the same old patterns from history, from how ec- the economic setting has been ordered in the world today. And now we're seeing that uh, the digital space is becoming the new realm around which um, these uh, issues are playing out. So it's just been another way to get people to understand, in a sense, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, if, uh, and the question being, even especially for ourselves and those we have elected into office, how they're going to, you know, eke out a better understanding or a better space for us to to, to have um, a say even in the international order and not always just going out to the, be- the sort of like begging bowls, if you will. So it's all very nuanced and connected to what we've seen even with other industries where it's just extracting. And I think that what the pushback is, we, we cannot continue to exist as a people who are just seen as markets. We are not, you know, people are not being seen as people with agency, with ideas, with alternatives even of how this digital economy could shape up in their, in our particular jurisdictions. And we cannot surely have that our policymaking spaces become net enablers of that kind of extractive uh, reality. What's very interesting also is that our governments are starting to realize that they're not getting the benefits uh, of having our connectivity, so to speak. The companies that are making the most money from this uh, connectivity are not registered in our jurisdictions, are not necessarily even investing in our jurisdictions. And right now, there's even an international agreement process going on on how we're going to tax the digital economy or tax the multinationals that are fueling our digital economy. And so I hope our African governments will also be part of those international negotiations because the current uh, knee-jerk reactions we're seeing them taking towards uh, trying to capture that value are passing down the cost to consumers as opposed to uh, capturing the you know the, the the returns they want to see from these companies themselves. Uh, if, I, if I get you right, I mean, what you're seeing 
for example, in Uganda, which is taxing um, WhatsApp and Facebook and all these over-the-top services, and other African countries are also doing the same. So uh, you're reckoning, yes, there's a way in which you can actually tax this uh, platform rather than, uh, you know, passing on that cost to consumers. Indeed, and I think that's, um, you know, absent what we have seen playing out in, in the African continent. We've seen when uh, France, for example, and other European countries also propose similar taxes. It almost, you know, has resulted to some sort of trade wars, and now they've had to agree through the OECD to have international negotiations on what are the best mechanisms for every jurisdiction to actually capture value. And those are going to be very important con uh, conversations for our governments to get involved in as well, because of the interconnectedness of these technologies and how, um, you know, the value can be, is so varied in terms of value chains and technologies as we understand them and how they transcend boundaries and jurisdictions is, sh is changing. So it will be very important. And I think it really speaks to the, the need to rejig um, the international order, even as we work at our local and regional levels to make sure that there's coherence all around. And at the end of the day, that um, connectivity and this digital economy does not leave too many people behind and can actually unlock benefits for everybody. Now, I, need, I know this is one thing that you've been really passionate about, you know, about inclusivity and diversity, and especially when it comes to uh, involving women in matters policy. Uh, maybe you could just tell me why, why is that important in the conversation around uh, technology and, and policy? Well, as I said, you know, technology is not, does not exist in a vacuum. It's very easy to think about technology as this technical space that, you know, it follows some particular logics. But it does, it is informed, it is uh, the design, the deployment and the ultimate benefits follow the patterns of who's involved, who uh, and at what stage they're involved. And it does tend to follow the very real uh you know, dynamics in our political economy, so to speak. Therefore, for example, if you have a strategy to connect the unconnected, but you have not even conversed with them, for example, you set out to put public Wi-Fi in a market center in a, in a rural area, is that space safe, um, accessible for not just women, persons with disabilities, um, other minority groups? That kind of thinking often gets lost in the whole notion of a build it and they will come. That taking a very technical or sort of like context-neutral approach to developing or deploying or designing solutions. We've seen where, um, you know, particular things have been rolled out and become, in a sense, almost utilities, have missed out on very in interesting considerations. I think one good example is when Apple released the smartwatch. And for, for years, they did not have, when they had the health monitoring app, they did not even consider um, menstruation as one key, or sexual and reproductive health as one key area women would be considering. And it's after continued uh, pushback from would-be female consumers of this product that they went to, um, eventually released one. But that was because most of the designers, and I think actually all the designers of the Apple Watch at the time were men. So that tells you how um, these technologies are going, always going to be shaped in the image of their creators. So we have the job to make sure that our creators are representing as diverse perspectives of our diverse world as possible. Actually, just a couple of hours ago, I read this piece, Jack Ma's uh, opinion piece, and uh, it's titled, African Entrepreneurs Will Drive the next digital revolution. Uh, I don't know whether you've read <laughs> it, but in, just in the context of what he said and uh, just in the context of um, you know, technology in Africa, what's the greatest misconception that people should unlearn about uh, you know, pretty much technology um, in Africa? Well, I'll say I, I've seen the article. I have chosen not to read it just yet because 
I, <laughs> I, I personally take issue with this notion of people parachuting in and suddenly having some discoveries and telling us, you know, things that we've already known. So we've seen that also a couple of weeks ago, I think it was last week when Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, was also around and made some similar declaration. I think it's, first of all, just that sort of lack of just disregard of people's agency and nuance. It's this this one size fits all declarations about Africa that we've seen, especially the technological age, and that entrepreneurship in and of itself is the silver bullet. We know for sure that's not the case. Um, we have a decade at least of this hype cycle, keeping trying not dying, if you will, that has not has only just I guess given injections to very knee jerk reactions and very flashy sort of like. Hack, hackathony type solutions when there are real systemic issues that will enable that entrepreneurial energy to actually take off. So it's just yet another boring notion of um, somebody who's made money somewhere coming and making declarations. And I think it's just, it's boring. <laughs> <laughs> I find it presently, I find it boring. And I'm like, tell me something new. Tell me, um, you know, and also I, I think there's so many other experts from this continent who should be getting that airtime, so to speak, and giving true context and nuance to the complexities, but also opportunities that we see um, for our continent. It's not going to be shaped by people who also have this notion that it's um, what has worked elsewhere will work here. Um, it's not necessarily the case. It might work in some instances, but it won't work all the time. So for me personally, I'm not here for declarations by big names. I'm really more here for the people who actually, in the, so to speak, the trenches, doing the work and building, uh, putting the building blocks to, to make um, that entrepreneurial energy do indeed help us uh, get to where we can be as a continent. Great. Now, th there was there was this newspaper headline I uh, from a couple of months ago, and it was, um, I'll read it out, it's UN ranks Kenyans as the most careless internet users globally. Now, what does this mean for digital rights and, you know, of, of course, as well, digital literacy? I've been meaning to read that report and look more uh, more deeply into the kinds of questions they ask people. Like I was saying earlier, you know, part of it is when people, um, and especially uh, I'd be curious if the researchers or people from here, because they would have known how to phrase these questions. If you go and ask people whether they care about privacy, um, in a, 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 a maybe a, a typical reaction would be something like privacy is when you have something to hide, right? I mean, and in a sense, that's how we sort of have had that kind of cultural sort of like sense. I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing. I'm just saying we maybe have a very different interpretation of it. So if I come to you with a very baked research question like that, you might, the, 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 the response may not give you the nuance towards it. I think there's been a lot of, um, and I'm, I'm very keen to see more nuanced research. And even at my organization now, we've just been doing some household survey research with more qualitative and sort of like uh, descriptive questions to get a sense of how whether people are concerned about these things, maybe using something like scenarios, where if you're told, you know, CCTV cameras have been installed in your city to, um, you know, the, 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 the tagline is always, you know, those will help with crime, for example, and combating crime. But when you start to explain to people, this is how this has been used, for example, to, you know, train facial recognition algorithms that can predict your movements and that kind of thing. And what getting people's perceptions when you put that particular issue within a narrative context gives you more insight. So from its research perspective, as it were, I, I'd, I'd love to, I want to investigate that more. But also even if let's say that was the case, I think it's not because people don't care. It's just that it could be anything from the great range of issues people have to worry about on any given day. They're not too worried about Facebook as the most existential threat to their lives, if you will. I, I, and I'm, I'm, of course, I'm not one to speculate because I haven't looked into it, but I imagine that there's a lot more nuance. I think there should be a lot more um, asking of how they arrived at that, 
what they asked and really investigating the investigation itself to get whether they actually it's an accurate representation of or why people feel that way and if indeed that's exactly what people were trying to convey. Earlier this year you were a part of a, 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 you know, several members put together by the UN Secretary General to look into uh, you know, digital cooperation. Could you just briefly tell me what, what that was all about and what the recommendation of uh, that panel was? Yeah, so the panel was constituted by the UN Secretary General to look into ways that we can work together to um, address and manage digital developments and to make sure that we can maximize the benefits and really minimize the harms. And it was actually really uh, important for us to work with the notion that, you know, we can't just take the hyper-optimistic view of what technologies can do, but to really also take stock of what we've already seen as risks that we know um, and harms that have already started to happen to really temper the conversation and uh, understand what technologies can and cannot do. So we were tasked with taking a systems view of the digital age and exploring how the issues and challenges are closely interlinked. So we had um, basically four interconnected pillars of our report. The first was this declaration of digital interdependence that outlines the vision, the values and objectives we propose should underpin cooperation in the digital age across governments, across private sector, civil society, how we all work together and how we even work amongst one another because even within those sectors, there are very interesting divergences or diversity if you will. Then one key theme we focused on was inclusion, and inclusion was indeed in the heart of our report. And one key message there was that digital technologies are necessary, but they're not sufficient in and of themselves to ensure an, in, an inclusive digital future for all. And this is, again, to what I was saying about technologies not existing or uh, developing in a vacuum. So uh, sounding the drum on that, again, was very important. Um, another key theme we had was considering some of the risks to individuals and societies from the use of digital technologies and looking at ways to address them. One key thing there was that human rights apply equally online as offline. And the question really is not if, but how. And one key finding for us is that there's an urgent work to have uh, to find practical measures to put in place to ensure that human rights are protected online. So one key recommendation back to the Secretary General was to launch a consultation um, and get as many examples as possible from all corners of the world on how, if people indeed have had experience on trying to ensure that technologies, um, you know, um, and human rights are protected online, so that we can have a compendium that informs how rules and norms will be shaped to govern uh, the digital age. And then we also had some, um, we outlined some models, if you will, for governing uh, the digital cooperation mechanisms, which looked at how you can work in a more agile manner between governments, for example, and innovators, um, or co-governance co co um, co between uh, governor governments and um, you know entrepreneurs, for example. Here in Kenya, we've seen that with the financial technology sector, where um, the Central Bank of Kenya is working and the Competition Markets Authority are creating some uh, really cool thing called a regulatory sandbox where the regulators will be working with innovators to understand at every step of the way what is happening. Each of them can learn from one another on what would be best practices to make sure each of their main functions are strengthened as opposed to be in, um, in contention with one another. So overall, we tried to make sure it was a readable report and an accessible one. And the work now is just really to continue with the, with the report that we've put to, and the recommendations we've put forth to the Secretary General to, uh, in conjunction with members states to to continue to advance and socialize the findings there and create new 
uh, avenues, especially within existing mechanisms of governance um, in the world today at international levels because of the uh, interdependence. What happens in Kenya in the digital realm will have an impact on what happens in Brazil. We just It's a matter of making those dots because we are also interconnected. Um, and that's going to be the work I think the Secretary General's uh, office will be working on going forward. And other UN agencies have also been adopting various recommendations to be the champions of them going forward. In terms of opportunities, where, where do you think that African countries probably need to focus on in terms of getting the kind of the dividends of digital communication and just transformation? Well, the fact that um, I think only uh, about 25% of the continent is connected is both a challenge and an opportunity. And the opportunity lies in how we go about connecting the remaining 75%. Um, we have examples of what can work and what hasn't worked, even from our own continental experiences in other parts of the world. And we could build upon those lessons to, to make, uh, the, make the best of it. For example, in Ethiopia right now, as they're liberalizing the telecommunications sector, they've shown the government has shown a willingness to actually learn from uh, what has worked and what has not worked in other parts of the world to make sure that they do not repeat the same mistakes or take the same, um, you know, typical paths, but to make sure that what they are advancing is contextual. And we see that with other countries that we work in as, as, as a web foundation more directly, that uh, there's a willingness to now engage on uh, taking on good practices. Um, of course, that is aligned with the political will to enforce that, and especially that remains an unhackable thing. At the end of the day, it's the most humbling thing when working on these things. There's no hack towards the political will, and that's an ultimately human function that cannot be bypassed by technologies. So there are many opportunities. There are opportunities to connect people um, through um, amazing things like community-owned cooperatives. So, for example, community-owned networks are becoming a really interesting way where communities in remote parts of different parts of the continent, for example, come together through cooperatives and set up their own um, Wi-Fi network that they manage and they negotiate um, the prices based on, you know, uh, uh, getting everybody together to agree on what prices will, will be attainable, the content that is on there. Those kinds of networks are proving to be very context-specific and people are not waiting for a telco or some big company or even the government to, to come at them, but they're creating that. So what governments can do in that case is make sure that the regulatory hurdles for them to get the licenses to operate and that kind of thing are removed so that we can, you see, at the, at the end of the day, the ultimate way is if everybody's connected, I think everyone in the value chain will have some value. That Those kinds of networks are not necessarily threats, say, to telcos or any other actors who see, consider themselves infrastructure service providers or internet service providers, but they need to be able to find ways to collaborate. And I think the real question remains in, and the real opportunity for our continent is in how with the diverse ways we've seen and new ways and even ones to come, we can see, uh, we can find ways for them to, co uh, to cooperate towards uh, connecting people meaningfully, universally and affordably, as opposed to being in competition because there's not going to be a one-size-fits-all approach. Great. Uh, uh, we are only a couple of weeks before the end of the year and I just wondered whether you could share with us, you know, looking back, What's, what are the high moments or just one, probably one high moment. And uh, yeah, you know, I I'm, I'm want to also take advantage of this conversation to hear what you think is the thing that we sh will be obsessed about, especially in your space uh, in the next year. <laughs> I like to say that this, this year for me, I think I'm quite proud of the fact that I have walked into spaces that typically would, would have continued to have conversations whether or not somebody like me was in the room. So I think I'm really proud of being able to represent uh, a different person in the global governance space that is people typically have uh, on the agenda but don't have them on the table. So shaking up tables has been fun and important and um, representation for me is a very important 
mentioned one. I'm quite happy to have been able to do that. And just to complicate how people understand uh, our, the view of people in the world, whether it's view as us as Africans, us as Africans who are young people, or Africans who are young people and happen to be women, just changing these notions or just making sure you complicate that perceived understanding, for me, that has been a really, really high point, even though it does, of course, derive a lot of energy to keep doing that. So I'm very happy and fortunate to have been able to show up, to have known where to show up. And of course, we'll try to continue to show up and keep those doors wide open so that even more people can do that and we can make it the new normal as opposed to the exception. Um, 2020, oh my gosh, it's already here. Um, I'm going to be, yeah, I think really this intersection of tech uh, tech policy and global governance, uh, uh, the interconnectedness of um, is our uh, digital age uh, means that rules have to be made at what I call a global level, both the global and the local. We need new ways of working together. The old uh, systems we have, traditional sort of multilateral or regional engagements, do need a rejig. And I'm going to be focusing a lot of time on how to make sure that uh, our instruments of governance can uh, come up to speed to participate in this fast-paced digital age because at the end of the day there's a sound role for policy and for governments to play we should not fall for the uh, illusion that we need to have governments take a step back um, and because at the end of the day we are the ones we elect um, and they're the ones who have the consent of the people not any company not any other actor so trying to make sure that that is a bolstered through institution reach is going to be a big focus of mine in the year to come That's all, folks, for 2019. Thanks a lot for listening and for sharing the podcast throughout the year. I'll be back in 2020 with more interviews about the media, tech, and politics in Africa. Happy Christmas for those who are celebrating and all the best in the new year. Until next time, bye-bye and asante sana.